1,106 days has elapsed since we began our sermon series through the book of Romans in April of 2013. Now, God's word is timeless. It's never bound by culture, never more appropriate in one season of history than in another. But you have to acknowledge the providence of God and the fact that we look at this text in this church, in this nation, on this day, in this year. This year, which is arguably an unprecedented election year for a variety of reasons. 158 Sundays ago, when we opened up to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1, we didn't plan to have this text fall at this time. We couldn't have known the events that would take place over the last three years and the situation our nation would be in, perhaps more polarized than ever, some say, than at this time we would open up our Bibles to Romans 13. So I want to begin today just briefly But importantly, with grateful hearts, not for a miracle. It's a miracle we're at Romans 13. No, that's a bit much. It's not a miracle. But I want to thank the Lord for his providence in working among us to bring us to this text at this time. Wayne Grudem defined God's providence as follows. God is continually evolved with all created things in such a way that he directs them to fulfill his purposes. It's not miraculous that we open up to this text on this day, but it is providential and kind of the Lord that he'd have us look to his word for guidance in this way at this particular time. So hopefully you found your way to Romans 13 by now, and our text is specifically verses 1 through 7. However, I think we'd be foolish to look at these seven verses as if they stand or fall alone, because they don't. If you wrote a letter to someone that was four pages long, and we picked it up and picked out one sentences or one group of sentences, there's a chance, there's actually a good chance that we'll at best miss something or at worst miss your point altogether. So since Romans is a letter, right? Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome. uh, I want to see the context in which we find this text so as to hopefully better understand the word of God today. So even though we're looking at Romans 13, one through seven, just look back with me at Romans chapter 12, Verse 9, and if you are able to do so, would you please stand at this time in honor of the reading of God's holy word, beginning in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9. This is what scripture says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is god's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of god and avenger who carries out god's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid god's wrath but also for the sake of conscience For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything 
except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Father in heaven, we come before you asking you to add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, I call upon you to be with me and not allow me to stand up here alone and to be with each and every one of us, Lord, opening up our eyes, opening up our hearts. Lord, we want to be changed by you this day. We want to be changed by your word, and we can't do that in and of ourselves. We need your movement within us, Lord. Would you change our hearts and minds to be more pleasing to you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the chapter and verse numbers and section titles serve us well in our Bibles as we seek to navigate our way around the Bible, right? To find our way from one section to another. Sometimes, however, they're not as helpful. Because in your Bibles, you have some sort of break between chapters 12 and 13. You probably have a subject title that separates those two sections, making it appear as if something has ended and something else has begun. But please listen to me. If we think like that today, we're going to miss a lot. If we think like that today about this portion of the text, really about any epistle, but particularly this portion of the text that we're looking at, we're going to miss a lot. And that's why, although our text today is just seven verses, I chose to read 21. Because here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, uh, not in the outline, but in your Bible, that this section that we're looking at is bookended by love. There's love at the beginning and there's love at the end. It is bookended by love. And that's what we've been talking about for the past two weeks, right? We've been talking about the genuine love that God wants us to have as believers. We have love in verse 9 of chapter 12. Look at it in your text. Chapter 12, verse 9, we have love, and it's explained and fleshed out for the rest of chapter 12. And we have love in verse 8 of chapter 13. Our text today is bookended by love. And with that, I want you to see the turn Paul takes in chapter 12 as he prepares to tell us how to respond to civil authority. Pick it up in chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I love how he says both of those things. Bless them, but also don't curse them. Bless you, bless you. Bless them, but also don't curse them. And then he tells us a bunch of things. Watch the pattern here. Live in harmony. Do not be haughty. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hey, Paulie, how might I do that? Well, verse 1 of chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Did you see that? In chapter 12, how he builds that foundation and leads into this. How he, going into talking about how we're going to respond to the governing authorities, he builds a foundation that leads us into thinking along the lines of repaying no one evil for evil. Doing what is honorable, not just in the sight of believers, but honorable in the sight of all. As much as possible, live peaceably with all. All, never avenge yourselves. And then we come up to this verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. In other words, Paul talks about genuine, authentic love being the trademark or the calling card of all Christians and then gives us specific ways we can do that. Now, think about it. The original recipients of Paul's letter were Christians living under Roman rule. Let's just be frank. If there's one group you think they don't have to be lovey-dovey with, one would think it would be the Roman government. This is the government that gave more thought towards how to torture and kill someone than any other group at the time. This is the government that drove the nails into Christ's hands and feet. This government and this regime is the same government and regime that only two chapters into the New Testament killed all male babies, two and under, while they slept. 
And so there's a temptation to overcome evil with evil because let's face it, can we all agree that just makes sense? Right? I mean, just in our own finite minds, like, okay, wow, you're going to kill my kid. I'm going to kill you. And the way we think as human beings, that just makes sense. Please nod and tell me if that makes sense. It just, that's just how we would think if we did not have the word of God. We would want to avenge ourselves. And that's why our great God has Paul write things like, don't be wise in your own eyes. Live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. And overcome evil with good. Such as, chapter 13, verse 1, being subject to the governing authorities. Genuine love for God, our first main point, and others, is shown by submitting to civil authority. Look at Romans 13, and verse 1. Let every person, every person, be subject to the governing authorities. Paul uses a Greek military term there for soldiers ranked under and subject to the absolute authority of a superior officer. So it's not, well, maybe he didn't really mean that. No, the, the term that he used would have been, it's a Greek word, hupotasso. It would, have been, it would have been understood. It's not a spiritual term. It's not a biblical term. It's a term that you would have used in any other military setting. And what he's saying is that Christians are to willingly place themselves under all governing authorities, whoever they may be. And he says something similarly in Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be, same word in the Greek, submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. What, pray tell, does submission to civil authority have to do with genuine love that Paul's been speaking about? Like, where's the connection? Well, here's the connection. Our earthly, what I'm going to call horizontal relationships with one another serve as indicators of our spiritual, vertical relationship with God. Let me say that again. The way we relate to one another, the way we interact with each other, in our homes, at our workplaces, in our schools, on the street, in the store, anywhere, the way we interact with each other is indicative of what is going on in our hearts as to how we interact with God. There's not a negligent dad who is dropping the ball at home and being selfish, but has a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? The way we treat one another and the way we, uh, the way we love one another or fail to love one another is indicative of where we stand with and how we are walking with the Lord. So that is the connection between submitting to civil authority and the genuine love that we're to have for one another and for the Lord. So what I want to do now is right from this text, I want to give you five reasons Christians are to submit to civil authorities. These are not my own. These are Paul's. These are, these are the Lord's as he inspired Paul to write these things down. So I want you to look at your Bibles and I want to show you the five reasons that Paul gives that we're to be subject to civil authorities. Reason number one, all earthly authority figures and structures come from God and are Appointed by God. Do you see that in verse 1? He continues and says, For there is no authority except from who? God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, you'll recall that when Jesus is being tried in front of Pontius Pilate, uh, in John chapter 19 and verse 11, Jesus tells Pilate, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So Jesus here is stating this point that Paul is making, that the authority that you have, Pontius Pilate, has been given to you from God. All authority structures and figures have been instituted and appointed by God. So that brings us to point number two. Resisting civil authorities is rebellion against God and invites God's judgment. Paul says that in verse two. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Remember, we do well to not only think horizontally. There's more at play here than what we can see past the ends of our noses. We need to think vertically. My horizontal relationships are indicative of my vertical relationship with the Lord. And that's the overarching point of Romans chapter 12. And in light of the gospel, in light of God's mercies, as Jesus preached a few weeks ago, since we've received grace, here's how we're to act. 
When we resist civil authorities, it's rebellion not just against the civil authorities, but rebellion against God and invites his judgment. And we don't only see this in the New Testament. This isn't like some new thing ever since Jesus came. Now we have to submit to governing authorities. But before that, we could have at it as much as we want. It's not in your outline, but Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 20 says, Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. So, pause. How you doing with that? <laughs> Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. It's a biblical mandate. It's something the Lord calls us to do, to set our minds aright when it comes to interacting with other people and talking about governing authorities. This room would be real empty if stoning was a present day result of cursing the king. I would think. Like there'd be a couple of babies. <laughs> I was going to say you wouldn't have a sermon right now, but we could probably pipe one in on video. But because but, I wouldn't be. I mean, this is a very convicting verse. A very convicting verse for me personally. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Resisting civil authorities is rebellion against God and invites God's judgment. Number three, we're looking at five reasons why we're to submit to civil authorities according to the text in front of us. Number three, our earthly government protects against evil and promotes good. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. What does this mean? Okay, it's a valid question. What does this mean? Because there's many times, many times, both here and elsewhere, and especially elsewhere, where you say, that government is not about good. That decision was not about preserving the good. Well, continue to think vertically with me. God has established government as a means of protection from evil and a means of promoting good. Let me see if I can explain. Even lost pagan rulers know that their job in general is to punish wrong and promote right. They know that their job as a ruler is to keep us away from wrong and keep us going towards right. Now, here's where it gets tricky. What they define as right and what they define as wrong will vary from person to person and will vary from uh, worldview to worldview. But in general, what God is telling us here in this text is that he has established government in general to promote that which is good, in general to protect from evil. And therefore, when we look at verse uh, 3, the latter part of verse 3, when Paul says, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Meaning, don't cross the guy and everything's going to be fine. Don't rebel against him and you'll receive his approval. And you don't have any reason to fear him. For he is God's servant for your good. When the Supreme Court ruled the way they did as they interpreted the 14th Amendment to allow for homosexuals to be married across the United States of America, they did so, regardless of what you and I think of the interpretation, they did so thinking they were what? Promoting good, right? They did the same thing in the 70s when they interpreted that same stinking amendment for Roe v. Wade. They believed they were promoting, we got to get that amendment right, but they believed they were promoting good. Do you understand? I'm not asking you if you believe. I'm telling you that in general, governments exist to promote that which is good. And if you ask them, they would say our ruling, our interpretation promoted good and protected from evil. That's the point that Paul is making in this portion. And so Paul, continuing to think vertically, says, you have no reason to fear those that are in authority. Just do what is good and you'll be fine. And the good Paul speaks of in verse 3 is the same good he's been talking about since he said overcome evil with good at the end of verse 12. The good that he's talking about when he says uh, in verse 3, then do what is good and you'll receive his approval, that good means submit to him and you'll receive his approval. Because that's the context, right? That's what Paul is talking about, that which is good. He hasn't taken a dog leg left and now all of a sudden uh, good is feeding the poor or something else. He's talking about submitting to governing authorities according to the context of 
this scripture. Reason number four, resisting earthly authority, uh, excuse me, resisting earthly government brings about serious consequences. Uh, Look at the latter part of verse four, Romans 13 and verse four. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Why submit? Well, one of the reasons Paul says is to be subject to the governing authorities is so we don't suffer the consequences of not being subject to the governing authorities because God has given government the right and ability to punish the wrongdoer, yes, even and including unto death. Now, we don't have time to go there today, but just a casual reading of the Old Testament shows you how God, in his sovereign providence, allows the nation of Israel to be nothing short of manhandled by rulers who were not godly for the purpose of judgment. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, Jehoshaphat appoints judges throughout the cities of Judah and says to them, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving divine judgment. Friends, oftentimes when we see rulers doing what they're doing, it's not because God is sitting on his hands up in heaven going, oh, this is so sad. Sometimes God allows these things to happen to judge a people, to judge a nation. We see that pattern throughout the scriptures. So reason number four is why should we submit? Well, because resisting earthly, resisting earthly government brings about serious consequences. And if we do what is wrong, uh, Paul reminds us, hey, remember, he's got authority. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. And then he's not, he goes on to say this man or this government or this regime is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And you say, yeah, well, he wasn't talking about our government. He would never say that our government is a servant of God. He was talking about the stinking Romans, the Romans. Do you understand? So when he's talking about the Roman government and saying these, this person is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, surely that applies to our government today as well. And finally, reason number five, our conscience bears witness with us that we're supposed to obey The government, verse five says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, it's not just about escaping earthly consequences, and it's not even solely about escaping God's judgment. You know, and I know that our consciences bear witness within us that that is what we're supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to obey the law and I know I'm supposed to obey the law. So it's kind of like Paul lists all these things and then he lists his fifth reason and looks at you and just goes, oh, and here's another thing. Come on now. Really? We all know we're supposed to obey. There's something inside of you that says, I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to obey this person. I'm supposed to, supposed to pull over for the cop because he's got the flashing lights and the shiny badge. I mean, this is just, there's something in me that tells me I'm supposed to do what this person says I'm supposed to do. There's something in me. There's something else in me that wants to rebel, but we all, well, none of us could stand there and go, I, I had no idea. I had no idea I was supposed to listen to these people. Come on. We're living, breathing, active adults. Like we drive cars and work jobs and run homes and pay bills. I think we know that we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities. And that's what Paul's basically saying. He's saying, don't just do it, not just to avoid God's wrath, but you know, something inside of you pushes you and pokes you, and you know that you're supposed to obey the government. You know you're supposed to obey the law. So Paul finishes basically by saying, do I really have to make this point? We know that that's what we're supposed to do. I also put 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and following in your outline, where we read something similar. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, if you look at verse 17, which is in your outline, or if you've turned to it, 
Do you see he says, honor everyone? And then he ends by saying, honor the emperor? I feel like the emperor would have been included in the everyone. Once again, (laughs) we look at the word of God and God is kind because he knows how we're bent. Because we're like, cool, we'll honor everyone. Well, okay, I'll honor almost everyone because I'm not going to honor that guy. And then God goes into specifics with us, right? And says, honor everyone and honor the emperor. (laughs) Just in case you think, okay, surely everyone means almost everyone. Because I like to think that, right? Surely everyone means almost everyone. Surely, surely not. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, Five reasons Christians submit to civil authorities. Number one, all earthly authority and figures and structures come from God. Number two, resisting civil authorities is rebellion against God and invites his judgment. Number three, our earthly government protects against evil and promotes good. Number four, resisting earthly government brings about serious consequences. And number five, you know you're supposed to. Our conscience bears witness within us that we're supposed to obey the government and honor everyone, including and especially the emperor. This is what the word of the Lord says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, which if you're anything like me, begs the question, hey, when can I not? I surely can't be the only person who reads a plain, straightforward text from scripture that says, hey, listen, you need to submit to this person, you need to submit to these people. And I go, okay, cool. Uh, question, ooh, ooh, ooh. When can I, like, not do that? That's just, I think that's human nature. I think it's especially American human nature. But it's definitely human nature. When can I not? Now, I want to point out something. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul doesn't address this at all. He gives you no opportunities to shirk yourself out from underneath what he just said. He, does have, he has no cross-reference. He has no, okay, subject yourselves except for the following situation. What he wants to do is just get across one point to the church at Rome, and that is this. Submit to the governing authorities. Submit to the governing authorities. He gives five reasons why you should submit and zero reasons why you should not. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire Paul to write about loopholes or any yeah, but statements when it comes to this matter. But if you're like me, you're probably thinking, is there any loophole? Always looking for a loophole. Well, even though it's not addressed in our text today, I think it's a fair question. In fact, the cover story of uh, Christianity Today this month was about this very issue. And it reads, Christians should submit to the governing authorities except for when they shouldn't. When to disobey. This is an interesting article. So it's very, very timely for this particular sermon and for this particular text. We're told to submit to governing authorities. Is there any time that we're not to? Is, in other words, is civil disobedience ever warranted, ever commanded, ever a good thing. Well, what I'd like to do now is give you a few examples, both recent and not so recent, of when people have decided that they should not submit to the governing authorities, and then I want to look at them in the light of Scripture. In Daniel chapter 1, four young Jewish men named Shadrach Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel himself were commanded to eat King Nebuchadnezzar's food and drink. They said, no, thank you, because it would have gone against the Mosaic law, and they made an appeal to eat their veggies and drink their water. Two chapters later, in Daniel chapter 3, the same four men were commanded to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's false gods, including a golden image he had created of himself. And they politely said they would not acknowledge that the consequences they'd suffer as a result, and said they had faith that God could deliver them from the fiery furnace that awaited them. But even if they didn't, they still would not bow down. Three chapters later, in Daniel chapter 6, an edict is issued forbidding prayer to anyone other than the king. Violators of this edict would be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel once again respectfully and unapologetically refused to obey. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were told to stop witnessing by the Jewish authorities. Their response was that they can't do that and that they were going to speak of what they had seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. They cannot help but speak the things 
and speak the word of the Lord. And so they did. In Acts chapter 5, they're confronted again by the Jewish leaders who were rather upset that they disobeyed. Shouldn't have been surprised. They said they were going to disobey. But were rather upset that they disobeyed. But Peter and the apostles responded by saying, we ought to obey God rather than man. And we could go on and on and on and list other examples as well. Here are some more recent examples of civil disobedience in the name of Christ. In June of last year, a 22-year-old by the name of Dylan Roof entered a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina during a prayer service and killed nine African Americans and injured one. When he was arrested, he said he did this because he wanted to ignite a race war. And in the wake of this tragedy, South Carolina legislators debated removing the Confederate flag from the state Capital. Now, my in-laws are in Columbia, South Carolina, the capital of South Carolina, and I've been to the state capital. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And the Confederate flag, until I think 2000 or 2001, used to be on top of the state capitol building. And it was put up there back in the early 60s as a sign of being against the desegregation of the South. And then in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001, it, it, it kind of makes me laugh a little because they decided... It's really wrong to have it up there. So then they put it down in front of the state capitol in a fenced-in area and erected a monument to it. So I guess it's better that it's not way up there, but now it's like right – so it's like right there. It just, made me, it just made me laugh when I heard like, oh, so that's – okay, I guess that's – yeah. It's right there, right – like you can't miss it. It blocks your view of the building. So anyway, this was the – but anyway, that's – South, South Carolina people, I, I don't know. So in the wake of this tragedy, South Carolina legislators debated removing the Confederate flag from the state capitol. Bree Newsom, a 30-year-old African-American woman, took it upon herself to scale a 30-foot flagpole in front of the state house in downtown, South, downtown Columbia, South Carolina, to remove the flag herself. Police ordered her to leave the flag alone and come down, to which she responded, In the name of Jesus, this flag has to come down. You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God, and this flag comes down today. And she recited Psalm 23 as she was arrested. Also in June, June was a big, big month last year. Also in June of last year, The Supreme Court of the United States of America interpreted the 14th Amendment to allow homosexuals the right to be married throughout the United States. In that same month, in our own Commonwealth of Kentucky, a county clerk by the name of Kim Davis refused to issue marriage licenses, citing her religious freedom as grounds to do what she did. She was jailed for a short amount of time, then released to a crowd of supporters who rallied outside of the detention center where she was held, welcoming her, waving American flags white paper cutout crosses on the ends of dowel rods and playing survivors eye of the tiger through the PA system. Oh, glory. (laughs) That's a great song. It should not be used. I can't, I can't not say that. It should not. I don't know if you can blaspheme eighties music, but that would be it. Don't wrap your Bible in your flag. Don't wrap your Bible in your flag. Folks, we have to acknowledge that ours is a nation that was, at least in part, born out of a violation of the very scripture we're discussing today. That's not to say God hasn't redeemed what was done and poured out blessings upon us as a nation that I call home because he most certainly has. That's not to say we shouldn't daily, consistently give thanks to God for allowing us to live where we do because as bad as you think it it is and as bad as you think the trajectory is that we're headed, you don't have to travel terribly far to realize it can be a lot worse On many levels. All I'm saying is this. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that the end justifies the means. Because it most certainly does not. I was just sharing my testimony uh, with some folks earlier before the service. As we were uh, in the baptism meeting. Discussing the baptism coming up in a few weeks. 
And if you know anything about my testimony, you know that uh, my uh, parents were divorced. My dad left my mom. And God, in his sovereignty and in his providence and in his grace, used that event to bring my mom to her knees and show her her need of a savior. The moral of the story is not that divorce is an effective means of evangelism. Does that that make sense? The end doesn't justify the means. God redeemed something bad and made it very, very, very good. But the end doesn't justify the means. We rightly sing, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Because like all of God's grace, it's given to us despite our ways, not because of them. It's unmerited favor. The land in which we live is not such a blessed place to live because we're so tough and we did this and our forefathers did this. It's because God has been so gracious to our nation despite our nation. Wrapping the Bible in the flag means we combine, and I would say wrongfully combine, our heavenly citizenship with our American citizenship and start to zealously uh, uh, and believe it's our job as Christians to preserve the Christian faith, and then every hill looks like it's worth dying on. Taxation, economics, social issues, partisanship. We start living the cause-centered life at the expense of the cross-centered life that God has called us to live. And I think it grieves the Lord when his children are more vocal and active about moralizing the culture and trying to change society from the outside than they are about converting souls and changing individuals from the inside. Don't wrap the Bible in the flag. Paul's primary identity was in the fact that he had a home in heaven, not a passport from Rome. It's the whole, once again, horizontal versus vertical thing. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is what? It's in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And it was this mentality that enabled him to have courage to stand and confidence to speak and a heart to sacrifice that he unquestionably did. And it's that mentality that's going to keep you steadfast and me steadfast through difficult times and effective for the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. Do you understand that? That's why Paul was so unstoppable. This was discussed recently at the Together for the Gospel conference. It's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with Paul? What are you going to do with this guy? If you put him in prison, he converts the jailers. If you release him, he says, that's fine to live as Christ. If you kill him, he says to die as gain. He's untouchable. He's untouchable. But that's not because he was such a bold Roman citizen. It's because long before he was ever arrested for his faith, his heart was arrested by the sovereign saving grace of God. And he's a new creature. That's why he says things like, from now on, I don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Right? Second Corinthians chapter 5. We once, I mean, if anyone's in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We don't wrap our Bibles in our flag. We take our flag and we put it in our Bibles. We say, this is who I am. I'm an American citizen, but let me put it right into the word of God. And now let the word of God have an effect on my American citizenship, not the other way around. Does that make sense? The Bible does a better job of holding your passport than your passport would do holding your Bible. If you think about it, seriously, that's true. But, but the metaphor carries through. Passports are small, so... Don't wrap your Bible with your flag. We pay taxes. We pay taxes. Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. I'm not in Romans 13. Now I am. Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We pay taxes. We pay taxes because that's what the Lord has commanded us to do both in this section and also Christ himself says what? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
We pay the tax. Caesar stands or falls what he does with your tax dollar. Because there's times when Christians in the past, and even in the, I'm, I'm sure there's times now, maybe you're one of them, refuse to pay taxes in a certain way, shape, or form because you know what that tax is going towards. You don't have a biblical leg to stand on for that. You pay the tax, and the person who receives the tax then takes your tax and does whatever he or she does with it. They stand or fall with what you do with your tax money, but we're responsible to pay taxes. So in case you haven't been able to tell, we're now in a section of the sermon where I just give you random thoughts that I think are applicable, but have to do with this as application. So don't wrap your Bible in the flag. Pay your taxes. Letter C. We salute the rank, not the man. Take a look at this video clip. Captain Sobel? Major winners. Captain Sobel. We salute the rank, not the man. Amanda. So if you recognize that, how many of you recognize that? That is a clip from Band of Brothers. And as you can see, Major Winters is sitting in the Jeep and Captain Sobel is walking by. He doesn't salute Major Winters. And that's because if you know the beginning of it, Major Winters wasn't always Major Winters. In fact, Major Winters was under Sobel earlier. And Sobel was kind of a jerk. So all of a sudden, now the fact that Major Winters is over Captain Sobel, that's obviously something that Captain Sobel's having a little bit of difficulty with, as you can see. But the point that he makes is, whoa, 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 whoa. When we salute, we're saluting the rank, not the man. This isn't personal. We salute the rank, not the man. We salute the office, not the man or woman that holds that office. You need to remember that even if you didn't put them in office, God did. Even if you didn't put them in office, you had nothing to do with the certain elected leader that you don't like, whether it's on a local level, a federal level. You didn't put them in office. That's true. God did. And that's not saying God did because he's pleased with everything that they're doing. But God is the one, right? We looked at that. God is the one who appoints leaders. God's the one who appoints the government authorities. And so we salute the rank, not the man. Be subject to the Lord for the Lord, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. Honor everyone, honor the emperor. We do well to remember that, that the structure is put in place by our founding fathers, by the grace of God. And that's what deserves our respect and honor. We respect and honor the Lord in so doing, and therefore we act accordingly. When Daniel was released from the lion's den and he saw the king, he didn't look at the king and say, hey, what's up, punk? Not at all. You're alive. Yep, sure am. Drop the mic. He did, that's not how he came out of the lion's den. You know what he said? O king, live forever. He was thrown into a lion's den, not just taxed highly. He was thrown into a den of lions, real legit lions, not stuffed lion, real lions thrown into that lion's den. And he comes out alive because the Lord shut the mouths of those lions. And what's his response to the king? It's one of respect. Whoever wins the election in November is God's man or woman, regardless of whether or not they're a godly man or woman. Whoever wins the election in November is God's man or woman for the job, regardless of whether or not they are a godly man or woman. And we do well to show respect and honor for the office and in turn respect and honor for the Lord. Letter D right there in your outline, civil disobedience, this is my opinion, is rarely necessary within a political system that allows reform. So it's rarely necessary within a political system that allows for things to change. I think we should proactively work the system. I think we should leave civil disobedience as the absolute last resort. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't eat the king's food, they didn't look at him and say, H, no. They appealed. They asked the king. They said, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? I don't want to eat your food, so can we, do, can we do this instead? 
Bree Newsom climbed the flagpole in June, removed the flag, and the flag was put back within the hour. In July, however, legislation was passed in South Carolina, which removed the flag permanently, placing it in a museum. On Thursday of this week, Governor Matt Bevin signed into law new legislation that removes the county clerk's name for marriage licenses, making it possible for Kim Davis and other clerks and any other conscientious objector to issue licenses without their conscience being violated. And I, I, I looked everywhere. I wasn't there, but as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, Matt, Matt Bevin did not opt to have Eye of the Tiger played at the signing. He's a good man. Although the trajectory is very concerning, we live in a country that allows for reforms and appeals. Now, I know the only thing constant is change, and, but I think we should know the system. I think we should be proactive in working the system. I think that includes voting, even if you have to hold your nose as you enter the booth. And finally... There's safety in numbers. Proverbs 11 and verse 14, where there is no guidance, people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. I am uh, concerned. I'm concerned over how I hear different people talking, uh, particularly about the election coming up in November and how their views have been affected by certain candidates that have chosen to run and what they're doing as a result. And I would just encourage you to don't come to conclusions by yourself. We're a church that emphasizes the importance of small groups, that emphasizes the importance of community as a primary means of changing and growing. I think we should talk about these things with other people who have a biblical worldview. I don't think we should be comfortable with our own thoughts and our own conclusions. That's not because I think we're idiots. I just think it's helpful for me to see, okay, am I thinking along the same lines as someone else who loves the Lord and someone else who loves the Lord and someone else who loves the Lord? Because if I am, that's encouraging. If I'm not, I'm probably going to step back and think twice about things. Just recently, I was out at a restaurant with somebody and I'm working through something that I'm thinking about and it's half-baked. It's, it's like a fifth-baked. It's ridiculous. And what I said sounded half-baked or a fifth-baked. I mean, it was ridiculous. But in my pride, I can either sit back and say, I'm going to wait till this sounds more polished. Or in my, what I think would be an act of humility and dependence upon the body of Christ, I could say, here's what I'm thinking. Call me crazy. And I did that and it was helpful because it was really half-baked. But I would encourage you to have these conversations with people who think like you, not necessarily politically, but biblically. Talk to one another. Pray with one another. Where there is no guidance, people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And lastly, I just want to reemphasize and remind you of where your citizenship truly lies. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is who he said he was, you don't think he's a madman, you don't think he's a liar, but you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that God was satisfied with the wrath that he absorbed, with the punishment that he paid on behalf of sinners like you and me, you are a new creature. You're a new creation. And you have a citizenship that is in heaven, which is what enables you to have courage to stand because this, this world is not your home. It's what enables you to do that which is right. It's what enables you to speak up and say, that's not right. This is right. It's what enables you to have confidence in the word of God and a heart to sacrifice. That's not going to come by you singing our national anthem. That's not going to come by you watching Band of Brothers. That's not going to come by you just staring at an American flag. It's going to come because of God's work at work in your life, driving you to go and reach people, driving you to go and spread truth, driving you to go and see people changed and saved infinitely further beyond and more important than watching the moralization of our culture. Does that make sense? Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul's citizenship was in heaven, and that's what enabled him to do what he did. That was the most important thing to him. And that's why he could say things like, to live as Christ, to die as gain, you can't hurt me. 
And that's why he was as effective as he was for the sake of the gospel. So I want to call our worship team up as we prepare to close with our song right now. And as we sing this song, we do this with grateful hearts that God really is stronger than you, than me, than these governing authorities that he puts in place. We have a savior. We have a sovereign God who is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning on high, unaffected, undeterred by the events that happen in this world. He's not weaker because of them. He has always been in control and does things for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you thankful for your rule in our lives. Lord, we thank you for grace and mercy. Lord, we ask for your help in discerning the times in which we live. Lord, we ask for your help in giving us wisdom, Lord, as to how we can best please you in the country that you have us living in, in the roles that you have us holding. Lord, we ask you to help us to think clearly and biblically as to how you would have us please you this November. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to discern, Lord, with wisdom from on high, what our best move is in all of these circumstances. Lord, we pray for the leaders of our country. We pray for the leaders that have yet to be. Lord, we pray first and foremost that you would do the same thing that you've done for so many of us, that you would save them. Lord, that you would open up their eyes their eyes and their ears and their hearts to truth, that you would change them, Lord, that you would give them the gift of eternal life, Lord, that they would make decisions for our country that please you because of the work that you're doing in their lives, Lord. Would you do that for your glory, we pray. And Lord, most importantly, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the citizenship that you've given us in heaven. And Lord, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name we pray, amen.